Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Rob Clark, and he operates the Lone Gunman Podcast. He's at about 200 shows, all researching the assassination of JFK. So I'm delighted to have him. I've also done some other interviews about people surrounding the JFK situation or case. I talked to Joseph Green, uh, who has also been on the Lone Gunman podcast. I had an interview back in 2019 about uh, George DeMornschild. The title of the book was Walking the Razor's Edge, The Dutchman and the Baron. And it was about a Dutch journalist who was friends with George DeMornschild and visited him in Dallas. Very strange, but a true story. And uh, I'd recommend people listen to that. But uh, we're going to talk and kind of go in. I saw a lot of names that look familiar to me about the JFK things. And a lot I didn't know. So I wasn't able. It's, he does very well-researched, long episodes on certain facets of the JFK assassination. But he can talk more about that. So, Rob Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you for agreeing to the interview. Thank you, William. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Great. So if people may not have heard of the Lone Gunman podcast or you, can you kind of talk about your background? What led you to start this uh, show and kind of how you how you unfill, uh, how you kind of conducted your research from the beginning? Yeah, well, I've been interested in the assassination of uh, probably about 30, 30 or so years. Um, like a lot of people, the, the movie JFK really spurned my interest. And, uh, you know, then with the advent of the Internet, it became a lot easier to do research and, and not just have to, you know, scour around for books to read. And uh, I started the show uh, basically out of the necessity of wanting to, to talk about it with somebody. <laughs> it's a very niche subject and, uh, you know, not a lot of people that might be immediately around you really, really care about it or anything. So. I made some friends along the way and uh, just decided it would be cool to do a, a podcast about it. Um, started that about seven or eight years ago and still here. Still here. And you, I mean, there is a community, like I was talking with Joseph Green, and there's definitely a series of JFK researchers, goes back to May Russell and some of these other personalities from the beginning. I was listening through one of your more recent ones and you kind of... Uh, didn't have kind of have a lower in, uh, impression on Fletcher Prudy, which I thought was interesting. But can maybe you can talk about some of the people who came before you and who was researching and what you learned from them? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I've read a, a lot of books. Uh, I have a lot of books, probably over a hundred books. Um, I read a lot. I take in a lot. I listen to a lot of shows. Uh, I've been to some conferences, and. You know, over the years, I guess, you know, certain authors, unfortunately, become married to certain theories. And in light of new evidence coming out, because we have all these document releases uh, recently and, you know, and through the 90s, you know, a lot more information comes out that, that kind of doesn't go with their theory, if you will. And so it's very hard for me to to really settle on you know, one quote, famous researcher or another, or, or somebody's work. I, I admire people that, that are open-minded and willing to admit that they made a mistake. Uh, you know, one, one classic example of that is just Josiah Thompson, who, 
I believe it was in 1967, put out one of the very early books called Six Seconds in Dallas. And, uh, you know, he put forth a theory in the book of how he thought uh, things went down there in Dealey Plaza. And I got a chance to talk to him in, in 2019 at a JFK conference in Dallas. And this was before his most recent book came out. And he told me, you know, over a couple beers in the bar, uh, that he he screwed up 50 50 years ago and he and he felt the need to uh get things right this time and uh his book just came out this past year and i got it and read it and there's a fantastic documentary on youtube called jfk unsolved that i would highly recommend everybody check out and uh it goes a lot more into josiah thompson's new book and the work he put into it and the research that went into it and uh very fascinating. He pretty much proves that the HSCA, which was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, that their conclusion was correct, that there was at least four shots, you know, in, in Dealey Plaza, and one of them did come from the grassy knoll, and that the acoustic evidence stands up to this day, and in fact, uh, proved it with, you know, up-to-date technology. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. Right, so that contradicts the central narrative of the lone gunman, right? Sure, sure. <clears throat> and, and a lot of people forget about the HSCA uh, investigation. You know, they just tend to hear about the you know the Warren report and, and all that, but they forget. You know, in the seventies, everything was kind of reinvestigated, and uh, you know, their conclusion was that there was at least four shots, and uh, you know, one of them acoustically, you know, came from the area of the grassy knoll. So, right. And I mean, probably where there were more than four shots, too. I mean, so I think uh, there were a lot of bullets flying around, it seems like that day. I mean, when you started, I mean, and it's kind of like unraveled or unfolded or exposed more information from November 22nd, 1963, through the decades as people learn more and other facets were learned, right? Like it's as the, and within the research community, it's kind of like they've just learned more over time, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, but you know, a couple of things just don't change over time. You know, you have there's a there's a, there's a Pruder film, and you have CE three nine nine, which is the commission exhibit of the so called magic bullet that they try to put forth as this bullet that made seven wounds on on two men, went through two different bones at least, and came out looking near pristine, and that just didn't sit right with a lot of people, and still doesn't. Right. So there's a lot of evidentiary problems. And I think I looked when I was looking through your podcast, you don't believe that anybody shot at the president from the book depository, right? I don't believe so. I, In my opinion, and I, I have no factual evidence whatsoever to back this up, but when you look at everything that has been put out out there, you know, about the book depository and about the movements and the people inside the depository immediately after the assassination. And you try to figure out where people were, what people were actually in the building and all of that. It just makes a little bit more sense to think that, that the rifle that was found on the sixth floor had been planted ahead of time along with the shells. Right. And you, I think you talked about this book that came out, Buell, Wesley Frazier. He was at the inside the book depository too. And you kind of critiqued his book, right? I did. Um, you know, he's a, he's a he's a strange character for sure. 
And a lot of things that he said over the years just don't add up to me. Um, I've been very, very critical of him before he put his book out. Um, Cause he's always stood by the, the fact that he, he swears that the so-called package that Oswald took to work that day was no more than two feet long. And uh, of course there was no two foot paper package found in the depository that day. And of course a rifle couldn't fit into that size package. Um, and in his HSCA interview, which is on tape, it's a four part thing. And some of it has been transcribed, and a couple of the tapes are very poor quality. Um, but there is one quote that, that stands out to, to me, and I'll paraphrase it for you. Um, I knew he had the rifle, or I knew he hid the rifle, and I stood there on the steps thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to get drawn into this. <laughs> so it sounds to me like... Frazier either knew that Oswald had brought a rifle into the building and didn't want to be associated with it whatsoever. And that's, that's an, I'm not saying it's anything nefarious, but if you're a 19 year old kid accused of being an accomplice to murdering the president of the United States, you probably want to distance yourself as much as possible from the, from the suspect. Right. I mean, it can make sense. I mean, and you talk about this guy, Josiah Thompson, whose name I didn't know, but you uh, looked into got one of the earlier books, which was Mark Lane's Rush, Rush to Judgment, too, right? Do you still think that book stands up over time? I do. Um, that You know, I appreciate everything that those first generation researchers did, whether it uh, be good, bad or indifferent. You know, just it's just more to add to the story. And of course, Mark Lane has been accused of a lot of things throughout the years and, and who knows about his various uh, tactics behind the scenes and, you know, his editing of uh, interviews with certain witnesses, but uh, you know, it, it's out there. It, it's valuable information that nobody looked into at the time other than him. And it's valuable. You know, you just have to take it with a grain of salt and see where the puzzle pieces fit into the puzzle. Yeah, and one of the other things that, I, I mean, there was a lot, you don't just focus on Texas or Dallas on that day. You're looking around a lot of stuff. You look into Oswald, Mexico City. You talk about what's going on in New Orleans. And one thing I saw was uh, there was an attempted assassination of Jim Garrison. I wasn't aware of that. Can you talk about that? Um, actually, I... Was there one? I thought I came across that. Maybe I'm wrong. I may have titled something that from coming okay. across a, a document, um, but I, I can't recall it offhand right right this second, William. Gotcha. And did you you also kind of looked into what's the story of Oswald in Mexico City? Because I think May Russell did something about him and there he was supposedly down there. I mean, he had a strange background. You do a lot of stuff about looking into Oswald's background. Can you talk about what he was up to and what we you found out about him prior to November 1963? Yeah, I mean, a lot about his life is just, it's very weird and doesn't make sense to us today. Um, but if you if you go back in time, of course, and, and, and kind of put yourself in his shoes, you know, he had two older brothers who went into the armed services ahead of him and a very uh, probably overbearing um, mother 
bothering about it, bothering him about every little thing. And they were moving around a lot. So it probably was hard for him to make uh, friends or keep friends. Um, you know, and he, and he went into the Marine Corps, he followed his brother's footsteps and, uh, he got an early discharge due to a supposed injury from his mother. And, uh, three days later, he's heading out on a freighter to, to England to ultimately make his way to, uh, Russia where he wants to defect allegedly and, uh, stays over there and, and meets a, meets a young Russian lady, falls in love, apparently gets married a couple weeks later. She gets pregnant. They have a child in Russia and then uh, they proceed to come back uh, to America. And of course, at, at this time of the Cold War, um, things were moving a little too smoothly for the Oswalds, uh, you know, as far as their exiting and entering c- different countries and, and, and lack of uh, debriefing, if you will, or, you know, State Department interference uh, in his return. Uh, but the FBI were, was on their radar. <clears throat> and in fact, um, a lot of the problem with these women that married these so-called American defectors coming back were spies for, for Soviet Russia. So the FBI was, uh, you know, keeping an eye on the Oswalds for sure in new Orleans and Dallas. Right. I mean, so it's 1959. It really is the height of the cold war and he's making these strange moves. Like how does he finance it? And he worked in kind of a U2 kind of uh, air, air base in Japan too, right? Before that. Yeah, that's correct. Over at Atsugi. You know, so he had some information that the, the Soviets would have been interested in for sure. And I mean, so like even his, even his, yeah. So, I mean, people are investigating his wife and he just had, and, and then he takes on this kind of uh, fair play for Cuba thing, which is very strange too, right? In New Orleans. Yeah. Very odd. You know, this, this all started in, uh, in New Orleans, you know, in the, in the spring of 63. And, you know, we have letters from him writing the, the head office of the fair play for Cuba committee in New York, you know, offering uh, to, to open up a new chapter in New Orleans. And, and they really weren't uh, too settled on that. So Oswald, Oswald took it upon himself just to make up his own faction, if you will, down there or try to anyway. And whether or not it was legit, who knows? Um, but, you know, we do have him captured on uh, film in a couple places, handing these leaflets out, you know, hands off Cuba. And of course, uh, you know, him putting the address of 544 Camp Street on on the uh, flyers uh, is a problem. <laughs> right, because it leads to the Guy Bannister. This is kind of the intro to Oliver Stone's film, GFK, right? Yeah, yeah. And not only was... That? Yeah, not only was Guy Bannister, you know, in the in the building, not necessarily at that address, because the building kind of sat on a corner. So one side of the building faced, uh, you know, Lafayette Street, and the other side, I believe, was uh, was on Camp Street. Um, but it's the same building, it's just two different entrances, uh, you know, with a restaurant at the bottom called Mancuso's, and. Uh, the 544 Camp Street address was actually the headquarters, former headquarters for the uh, Cuban, Cuban Student Directorate, uh, which is one of these anti-Castro Cuban, 
what is organizations, right? Yes, funded by the American government, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, funded by the CIA. And so that's very interesting. You know, a lot of people uh, interviewed over the years uh, said that they had seen Oswald in the building, that he kept his flyers there, he had, that he had a little office on the second floor. Um, of course, none of which we can prove, but, you know, the allegations are there. And, uh, yeah, I, the the whole lead up to the assassination and what was going on in New Orleans is always fan. Uh, really fantasized me uh, because I, I think that a lot of the formulaic um, machinations for the assassination came together in new Orleans. And there's some very curious characters, you know, associated with Bannister and Ferry and all these guys down there in new Orleans um, that have come out over the years, you know, such as little known figures like Thomas Beckham. Can you talk about him? Who's Thomas Beckham? Sure. Uh, he's actually still alive. Uh, he's a guy, I believe he he was a con man back in the early 60s. Uh, jack of all trades, master none type type of guy. Um, he was a country and western singer. He was uh, hanging around a lot of these guys down there like David Ferry and uh, another guy by the name of uh, Jack Martin, who he alleged was a CIA guy down there. And uh, so, you know, all these guys kind of knew each other down there. And Beckham wrote a book in 2006 um, where he kind of came out and, and told his side of the truth. And the fascinating part of it was if you go back and look at the declassified uh, documents of the HSCA, they ran across this guy back in the seventies and interviewed him while he was in prison in Alabama. And he gave pretty much the same account um, where he was told he was meeting with uh, people like Ferry and Bannister and a couple other people in uh, a lawyer's office down there. And he was told to take a package to Dallas and he said he did and uh, met with a guy in Dallas by the name of Lawrence Howard who kind of looked at the package and was like, is, is this it? You know, this is all you got. And he said, yeah, that's all. That's all they gave me. And he said he was very upset about it. And he said he got back on the plane and went back home. And that's all he knows. Hmm. Very weird stuff. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, and, and Ferry was what? One of these weird bishops of New Orleans. I think you did a show on that. Like there's just strange environment and working with a lot of cubans right-wing cubans like things don't make sense that ferry is hanging out with uh who's on hanging out with right-wingers while oswald is parading as a left-winger right yeah yeah for sure um you know these a lot of these churches down in new orleans were fronts to collect uh, what basically to store supplies and weapons for the uh, anti Castro Cubans and uh, things like that. They were used to uh, raise money for the cause. Um, and supposedly, you know, cert only certain people had keys to these churches and uh, very weird stuff. I would, I would highly recommend people check out a lot of, uh, Peter Lavenda's book, this I don't know, it's the Sinister Forces, yeah. The Sinister Forces, you know, where he 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 was actually 
posing as a uh, some kind of religious official and was able to make it into uh, RFK's funeral unmolested uh, and just unquestioned. And it's amazing what you can do when you have a, a frock on, <laughs> apparently, right. back in the 60s, you know. Right. It's probably what these guys did, too. Right. That's what that's probably was just a uh, camouflage one way. Sure. Sure. Um, and I mean, did you ever verify that there was like a anti-Castro Cuban training base outside of New Orleans? Is that verified? And, and Ferry was involved in it? Yeah. Uh, it was at Lake Pontchartrain. There was, definitely was a training camp there. This guy, uh, Ricardo Davis, ran it. And he was actually he asked for Dean Andrews as his uh, primary uh, investigator. And, of course, Dean Andrews is, is famous to the case for uh, alleging that uh, he got a phone call asking him to represent Oswald in Dallas by a man by the name of Clay Bertrand. Gotcha. Clay Bertrand, who they later found out was Clay Shaw, right? Yeah, who he had, he definitely alleged that it was Clay Shaw. He actually told uh, another first-generation researcher, Harold Weisberg, in confidence uh, before he passed that Shaw was definitely Bertrand. Um, but then again, you know, things change, William. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there's, there's a, a reporter down there in Louisiana who came across an actual real person named Clay Bertrand, who used to work at, at the show bar in New Orleans as a bouncer. And of course, that's a kind of seedy, seedy side of town there with a lot of these under underground uh, gay bars that a lot of these guys would frequent. So, and at, at times, uh, you know, Dean Andrews said that uh, Clay Bertrand was a, a young man, you know, about six feet tall, strapping. Uh, you know, and other times, uh, you know, of course, he would be. Uh, resembling clay shaw you know six foot four gray hair very distinguished so i'm to the point of who knows about clay shaw right but i mean that's kind of like uh intel practice like confusing identities either in the mob or underground so that's to me it's evidence that somebody's trying to obfuscate things well yeah Much it like Oswald supposedly being in mexico was do you think that he was in mexico <clears throat> Well, there's certainly no evidence whatsoever that he was, if he was. Um, the pictures and the tapes that the CIA captured him on, supposedly, and sent back here. Um, we have a phone call between uh, J. Edgar Hoover and, and President Johnson saying that the voice on the tape didn't match Oswald's. And the pictures that we've seen that were sent back that were supposedly taken of Oswald on these, uh, on these cameras that were fixed out, you know, aiming at the embassies um, definitely is not Oswald. So, and we have sightings of Oswald in Dallas uh, visiting uh, Sylvia Odio, allegedly uh, at the same time, he's supposed to be in Mexico. So, you know, that's another big black hole anomaly that you can get stuck down and trying to figure out exactly what happened there. Right. And I mean, at the day of the shooting, Oswald's there, but there, I mean, there's other, there's so many different people there that have cited there. I think there was a story that E Howard, that Howard Hunt 
well, drove a car with people, right, to Dallas, like he was headed to Dallas. Do you think that Hunt was one of the uh, the bums or whatever, the hobos? I don't think he was. Um, and, of course, this all this is all – I mean, there's people that do. There's people that, uh, you know, believe it was Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis and uh, – what, what Harrelson. Woody Harrelson's dad, Charles. Mm-hmm. And Chauncey Holt is another one who claimed to be the old, quote, old bum. Um, I don't think it's anybody. I don't think they really had a, a part in it. And of course their arrest records were found in the late eighties in the Dallas police archives. And it turns out that it wasn't anybody that you've heard of. Um, so I don't put, I don't put much, uh, stock in the, in the, in the tramps being associated with anything. Of course, back in the sixties, when they were still an anomaly and had no answers, you know, I, I believe Jim Garrison went on the tonight show with the pictures of these guys saying, Hey, these guys were arrested that day and we don't know who they were, gotcha. which is a valid point, you know? Right. I mean, and, and well, didn't somebody see Lansdale on site too in Dallas? Edward Lansdale. Well, that that's part too? of the whole, uh, that's part of the whole proudy thing. There's a guy captured in one of the uh, tramp photos walking away. So all you see is the back of his head, the back of his suit, and a hand. And so this was supposedly identified by a General Krulak to Prouty as, oh, that looks like uh, Lansdale's ring on his finger. And he, he has the same gait as Lansdale, which to me doesn't doesn't prove anything i mean if if somebody like a, a five-star general was walking through dealey plaza right after the assassination uh that doesn't make much sense to me you know if they were in charge of planning it I, my guess is if it was me i wouldn't be anywhere near dealey plaza after the assassination to get caught right. on film right why would yeah i mean it's just a huge event everybody fled it just seems like the shooters fled. Everybody was kind of trying to get out of Dodge. Um, <clears throat> what's your thought? I know somebody who I think you mentioned in one of your podcasts is Joan Mellon, who's been really a long-time, multiple-decade researcher into the JFK assassination. What's your kind of position regarding her work? I think she just put out another JFK book recently, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely a huge fan of her work. Um she she's a big admirer of, of Jim Garrison and, and what he was doing down there in New Orleans. And um, I believe she was down there working with him at the time for some of it. She's got a very fascinating, uh, you know, outlook on the case, as well as I believe she put out a book about the Moore Shield as well hmm. called Our, Our Man in Haiti. Right. The Moran Shield was definitely like a white Russian kind of elite intel guys very strange but he i mean it's, it's very strange too because he was on um, the book that i read the razor's edge walking the razor's edge the mornshill was having a homosexual affair with the journalist like the uh the dutchman it's off the charts a lot of these yeah. guys were in gay bars too right fairy and uh what is it what's the other guy's name shaw these i mean i think that's depicted in jfk's i mean sorry stone's jfk movie oh yeah for sure i mean there's there's a t- there's a ton of that. It's like a, almost a, a thread running through everything. I mean, there's even allegations of uh, uh, Lee Oswald being gay, of course. Um, and that. who knows? Yeah, I did. I have one of my shows is called, you know, I, uh, I F Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald. I came across this document 
And uh, it kind of told this like seven page story of meeting up with Lee Oswald and uh, for five dollars went back to some seedy apartment on Canal Street and crazy stuff. Yeah, I believe Dean, whole... you know, Dean Andrews called him swishy a little bit, you know, so it's who knows. The whole case is just just redolent with high strangeness. The whole just everything about it. Like uh, there's just so many weird things. Like even the Ruby case, you talked about Ruby and his trial. Like he's all mobbed up. Like it's just he's another fascinating character too, right? Rubenstein. Yeah, Jack Ruby, owner of the Carousel Club. Um, you know, I've always thought William. You know, it's you know it's one thing to have his his supposed connections, right? And to have two emphatic nuts in Dallas at the same time, because you know it, it, your life has to be going a very certain direction. To want to murder someone when you haven't committed murder before, you're not a killer. You're a respected Dallas businessman, a business owner, but you're going to throw your whole life away to go in front of. 30 policemen, television cameras to stick a gun in the accused assassin's gut and pull the trigger in front of the world. Somebody either has to have some serious leverage against you to make you do that. I just don't believe somebody is that fanatical. It just doesn't make sense. It was no. almost like they brought out Oswald for the shooting to me. It almost looks like a stage event. Like, it didn't look random. Like, okay, we're going to bring him out, make sure that Ruby's ready. I know that may sound strange, but it's like they have the most important person in the world at that time after the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, get shot. And they just brought him out into a crowd. Like, it doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if it was intentional, at least in my mind. Yeah, That's I mean, he was mind. wide open, too, you know, and it's, right. it's mid-morning. They had put it off the transfer. They were going to do it overnight, and they kept putting it off and putting it off, and – uh if you go back and, and watch the the footage with the sound on, <clears throat> there's a very odd timed uh, honking of a horn. If you ask me, wow, wow. like he's coming out. That's the signal. Yeah. Wow. And wow, as soon as you hear this horn up. honk, yeah, Ruby Ruby pops out and then and shoots him. It's incredible. And he, you know, Oswald figures it out. He's like, I'm a patsy. I'm trying to, you know, give me some help. Somebody beat him up. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of. There's a lot of looks, you know, he doesn't say much. We don't have him saying much on camera, but his face at times speaks a thousand words, you know, like when at the midnight press conference, when they tell him, Oh no, you have been charged with the murder of the president. You see his face just drop to the floor basically. And it's, it's almost like in, a, in, a, in an instant, he figures out what they did to him. Right. Like he didn't know the whole thing. Now he gets it. Somebody targeted him. And he was probably just a little, you know, he's probably had some kind of intel element to him. Like if uh, the head of the FBI knows him and all this stuff, he had to be networked too. He just had to, some kind of low level intel guy they just threw to the wolves, in my opinion. Well, yeah. And, and you got to remember too that this, he could have easily been duped. Okay. I mean, he ordered this rifle under an alias of Alec Heidel, A.J. Heidel. 
to his mother's post office box in New Orleans and probably figured in a, of course this was the name that he was using uh, in association with his fair play for Cuba committee. I think he had uh, Alec Heidel as the treasurer of this fictitious group. Right. Right. So if you can align this Alex Heidel with supporting Castro, okay, in New Orleans and being tied to a rifle found to be the murder weapon uh, of the president in Dallas. Maybe Oswald doesn't figure that this rifle could be traced back to him. You know, maybe the rifle in his mind is supposed to be found tied back to this pro Castro character in New Orleans. And maybe he just doesn't put two to two and two together um, that it could come back on him. Right. Like he, he doesn't know he's being set up and and conditioned for the big event. Right. Right. I mean, they could have easily just told him, say, Hey, look, man, we're going to, we're going to take some pot shots at the president, you know, just to scare him enough to into doing something about Cuba. Uh, You know, when they find out that the rifle had been tied back to some Castro supporter, you know, that it might, piss Kennedy off enough to where he might actually take some action because a lot of people were upset that, that Kennedy, you know, didn't really provide air support for the Bay of pigs. You know, a lot of, a lot of Cubans died um, and, and a lot of anti Castro Americans died as well. And a lot of people were very upset at president Kennedy, like upset enough to probably want to take him out. Right. Right. I mean, he angered everybody. He and his brother, Angered the mob, the intel community, um, the anti-Castro Cubans. Like there's, a, he had a lot of networks of problems. Uh, so, yeah, and for me, it all comes down. And I've looked at a lot of things over the years. You know, I, th- I think I've solved the case just about every year that comes along. And then something, something will come along and say, nope that 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 makes that theory null and void. You forget that. Okay, let's look at something else. Um, but you know, for some time from everything I've looked at, to me, it all settles back on the hatred of Kennedy, his treatment of the CIA and these anti-Castro Cubans. And of course they're all married together in this weird way. They're all around. Um, They're around in Watergate. I think you mentioned that in your stuff. You have the anti-Castro Cubans really were the foot soldiers. There's tons of them just around the Intel community in Florida and all that stuff. Very angry. And I actually did, it was the ghost of Sheridan circle, which is a really fascinating book that I interviewed a guy about the bombing of Letelier in DC. Mm -hmm. It was like the only bombing. We got another group of anti-Castro Cubans. And um, they, I, he told me the author, his name, I can't remember now, but after 63, the anti-Castro Cubans were almost like a terrorist organization. They were bombing people. They were they were associated with all kinds of uh, criminality because they were angry. And uh, yeah, so yeah, a lot of it like translated, you know, into Operation Chaos, like out on the West Coast. There was a, one guy in particular associated with with all this stuff. His name's Roy Hargraves, and he was an anti-Castro. Uh, freedom fighter. He was an American guy, but he he believed in the cause. There's a lot of these guys uh, milling around 
uh, back then going across the country um, and believing in the fight so much, you know, it, they didn't want this communist uh, guy, all, you know, 60 miles off the coast of their shore. They were mad at Kennedy because he wouldn't do anything about it. And a lot of these guys were teaming up with the anti-Castro Cubans and going on raids into Cuba, uh, you know, just trying to take it on for themselves because nobody else was doing anything. And these guys were very idealistic in their, in their, uh, in their way of thinking and their beliefs. I mean, enough for them to leave their families, you know, for months on end to go train or go on raids or, you know, just, uh, just live this crazy life. Right. Well, the Bay of Pigs led directly to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which scared the living daylights of everybody because it was thought it was nuclear war. So that also can amp up or amplify people's anger. I mean, yeah, it's it's just an incredible event. Sixty three really is something else. I mean, there's so much. What are the What do you think? Looking back, you've done this podcast. You're almost at two hundred episodes. What are some of the most interesting guests or topics, maybe that you've learned of that maybe aren't really, really known as well to the general public? Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of things that actually came to light, you know, over the past year that are, are pretty interesting, I'll say. Um, I've had my sights on some several key suspects over the years um, who, in my opinion, uh, had a hand in, you know, actually pulling this thing off. Um. And there's a fellow by the name of Lauren Hall who was associated with, with uh, Jerry Hemming and Interpen and what we call the uh, gunboat cowboys uh, down there. And he actually spent some time in, in a Cuban prison with Santos Traficante, um, people like John Martino. And he would, he would, you know, he would come back here and he was very, very right wing. And uh, he would even, you know, go to these different organizations and do these, uh, rallies and speeches and, and collect money and guns. And he was actually arrested in Dallas, uh, moving guns uh, to Florida in October of 63. So he's, he's one of these main, uh, what I call a main character. Now, what was interesting this past year, his stepson um, came forward after all these years. Of course, Lauren Hall has been dead for quite a while. Um, because they, they found a rifle in the attic of their, of their house. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be a man liquor Carcano rifle. Only this one was a 7.35 millimeter instead of a 6.5 millimeter. And so the story goes, of course, his stepson was a young teenager. I believe at the time he said about a week after the assassination, uh, you know, his stepdad came home. And uh, gave him this rifle and told him to, to hide it somewhere and never speak of it again. And at the time, of course, you know, he didn't really put two and two together. He didn't know anything was going on. And apparently this wasn't odd behavior for, for his stepfather. Uh, he, you know, he was around weapons all the time. But this particular rifle um, came back out and uh, very interesting story. You know, especially when you put start putting two and two together you know, with Josiah Thompson's new research that there was a shot from the grassy knoll. Because um, apparently he told his stepson a little later years, you know, that there was 
a shooter on the grassy knoll and that there was somebody there to make sure that the shot was taken. Gotcha. There was like a backup ensuring yeah. that it happened. It probably was each shoot t- shooting team probably did the same thing, right? Probably yeah, I mean, if you, groups like two or three guys. If you really look at at you know the stuff in Dealey Plaza and and like in the Mormon photograph and, and certain ones that have been cleaned up, you can kind of see a figure, you know, popping up over the picket fence there. And of course, it was alleged by several witnesses that people were seen behind that picket fence, uh, puffs of smoke, et cetera, wa- wafting out over the the overpass. And that's where everybody was running, at, right. you know, after the shots. You can still see that movie of them running toward people running towards the fence, right? There's, there's yeah. a film of that. Somebody walked in. And uh, so that's, you know, all that points to me is that something happened up there. And there may have been, there probably was shots from the rear, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that they didn't come from the sixth floor of the school book depository. Uh, there was plenty of other buildings back there that, that provided a lot better shots, easier access and ingress and egress, if you will, to get away. I've heard the um, Dow Tech building, you know, people speculated. Yeah, the Dow Tech's building, the county records building. Um, so, yeah, much more, uh, it just makes much more sense to me. And, of course, there's there's two figures that haven't really been out of all the people, you know, over the years that have been identified in Dealey Plaza at the time of the shots, captured on film that you can say, okay, this is this person, that's that person, this is this person, we know who that is, we know who that is. There's two people that we have no idea who they are. Now, one of them is the so-called Umbrella Man, who allegedly came forward during the HSCA, HSCA investigation and claimed to be, I forget what his name was, Louis Witt, I believe. And, you know, he stated that he was, he had the umbrella up and he was pumping it up and down as a protest of some some kind of World War One thing about the Kennedys that probably nobody would have gotten, right? right. And uh, the other fellow is, is, is this guy named the Dark Complected Man who was actually standing in the street. He was the closest person. It wasn't the Newmans, the family that you see, you know, covering their children. This guy, this Cuban guy, what it looks to me, to me like, in a blue shirt, is actually standing in the street right next to the limousine as Kennedy's head is blown off. And his arm is up and he has a fist up. Hmm. And that guy has never been identified. Nobody's ever come forward to claim to be him over the years. And from what, you know, what we can, the, the close-ups, you can only get so much. And of course, the photographic evidence is very uh, selective. You know, people have a lot of different opinions about the, all the photographic evidence and everybody can have opinions and it's nothing conclusive. But to me, it looks a whole lot like this anti-Castro Cuban fellow by the name of Felipe uh, Vidal Santiago and his buddy Roy Hargraves. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So Roy Hargraves, as, as the umbrella man, as they sit there on the curb. And actually, Roy Hargraves was interviewed um for Noel Twyman's book called Bloody Treason in the mid-90s. And this part of it didn't make it into Noel Twyman's book, but Larry Hancock uh, reprinted it in his book called Someone Would Have Talked, 
which is full of people that did talk. And Roy Hargraves admitted to the authors that he was in Dallas on November the 22nd, 1963, and that his job there was as a demolitions expert. He said that there was a vehicle on the other side of that overpass wired to blow in case whatever happened in Dealey Plaza didn't work. Wow. So they had a backup plan. Wow. And if you look closely at this so-called dark complected man in Dealey Plaza, various photos, it's, it looks like he has something in the, in the back of his jacket. And, it, and even in other photos, it looks like he's on some kind of a radio with an antenna and everything. So it's very odd stuff. It's just so many different people. This guy, I was looking up Lauren Hall. There's a picture of him on the Spartacus educational.com. And he says, I was a right wing, radical right wing. I was a reactionary. Almost every meeting that I ever went to, I heard somebody plotting or talking about somebody should blow Kennedy's head off. So, yeah, you know, he's the real deal, man. I mean, he's uh, he alleges, you know, to have been in many meetings in Dallas with big, uh, you know, right wing guys that all supposedly offered him fifty thousand dollars to to kill kennedy right like and there's so there's wealthy people there's the trucking brothers or whatever mm -hmm. um there there were military guys who were super far right wing i think one of them like somebody shot through his his house or something before the event there's all yeah. kinds of deep things going on <clears throat> and uh, the name of josiah thompson's book is last second in dallas that just came out at the beginning of 2021. If people want to look at that, but it has like 223 five star reviews. I said I should reach out to him. Um, what uh, do you mind taking a few questions? Here's one from We Steals Plato Snakes. Can you ask the guest if there's any clarification that Oswald had ties to the trash bag killer? I don't know who the trash bag killer is. Do you? I think I know. Well, maybe I'm thinking of the ice pick killer. There was somebody alleged, I think it was Charles Rogers. Um, I think he ended up murdering his parents and stuffing them in, in trash bags. Uh, he was allegedly a shooter on the grassy knoll, another one. Um, I don't believe that this tramp was Charles Rogers. Um, and I don't believe Oswald had any, any ties to him whatsoever, no. Um, yeah, where's the best place to, for people to listen to your show, right? I mean, it's, you could just find it on any podcast distributor, right? Yeah. Anywhere and everywhere, you know, Apple, uh, Stitcher, um, yeah, anywhere, pretty much, pretty much just Google it. Yeah. It'll pop and up. you have your, what episode you're at now? 193, 194. And do you, um, where's the best place if people want to reach out to you? Do you have a website or social media? Yeah, they can uh, always find me on Twitter at at the Lone Gunman Seven, and I also have a Facebook page. It's just search for the Lone Gunman Podcast, and uh, feel free to message me either place. I will answer. And uh, yeah, really interesting. I mean, you've done tons of work, tons of different subjects, and people can go sit, send that out. Anything you'd like to add, or anything I missed before we wrap it up? Um, I saw there was another question. Somebody made said something about Frank Sturgis. Link to background Sturgis affiliation. Let's see. FBI got a telex. Maybe I missed it. Let's see. Dean Andrew was the lawyer. John Candy played. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So Dean, it's kind of like, I mean, 
New Orleans at that time was, I mean, it's always kind of been very corrupt, right? Just very fast and loose with the law. The sensibilities are different. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, totally different time and era. Time and era. Awesome. Well, great job. Again, the name of the podcast is the Lone Gunman Podcast. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And a guest was Rob Clark. So, Rob, thanks so much for your time. Oh, and William, real quick, let me also tell everybody, I also do another podcast called Quick Hits, a news and notes JFK assassination podcast with my buddy Doug Campbell, who is the host of uh, the Dallas Action Podcast. And we do that one together. We got about 25 or 30 episodes of that as well. So if you dig it, you'll dig that one. Awesome. So that was Quick Hits. And then what was the second one again? Say that. Um his podcast is called the Dallas action and it's all about the Kennedy assassination as well. Gotcha. Cool. I'll I'll put those in the show notes too. If you send those links over too, that'd be great. Sure. Again, Rob Clark. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Thank you. All right. Stay there. there.